hello and welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. Today in the show, we have Joe Shapinskin, an incredible designer based in Australia. And in this episode, we speak at length around co-design and how to go about introducing it within your organizations. And we speak about Joe's experience working in this space. And we actually spoke about a fascinating project that Joe did called Refugee Realities, aimed to educate school children and the wider Australian public about life as a refugee in downtown Melbourne. So let's get straight into the episode. Joe Stepanska, a very warm welcome to Bring in Design Closer. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Joe, we have connected this morning. I've been aware of your work for a number of years, and it wasn't until last night that I was like looking back over my notes for this introduction. I think I actually even saw your name. Was it on Unsplash as well? Oh yeah, way yeah. back. I think I've used your photographs for presentations so you're you're not only a service designer design leader but you're also an accomplished photographer as well i've also made the beer icon on noun project if you want to look that up too very popular no way <laughs> it just gets better and better folks so i'm excited to have you here I, I was excited now i'm really excited to have you here. the beer icon from noun project it's a stubby for australia's stubby. sake yep yep it's truth <laughs> well, we'll crack on. Joe, for any of the listeners here who don't know you, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe what you describe, what you do to, to people who don't know what you do. Oh, okay. So my name is Joe Stefanska. I'm a designer and researcher. I'm a big co-design advocate. Yeah. At the moment, I'm working from the Wurundjeri lands or the Boon people here in Melbourne, Australia. And I guess how I describe what I do to people who don't know me is I'm a design acupuncturist. <laughs> Ooh. That's a first here on This Is A Today. We've had a design acupuncturist. So walk me through the rationale for calling yourself a design acupuncturist. So essentially how I describe it is I use design to alleviate poor service chi. So blocked services, painful interactions, all sorts of things that are not working how they should. So that really helps me explain it to people who might not know anything about service mm. design and things like that. I really like that. It's straight away I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting one. Do you think we might see people in LinkedIn in the next five years changing their statuses from, say, service design to a design acupuncturist? I hope so. I hope so. And I hope it becomes as holistic as that too, because you're kind of using mm. all the design tools and all the sensors to kind of figure out what's really going on. Yeah. A lot of your work in the past has probably been very close to, if not service design. Is that fair to say? I think most of it. Yeah. Mm. I, I studied industrial design and then social design and then kind of fumbled my way towards service design. Hmm. So I'm an industrial designer as well. Walk me through what your journey was like from industrial design to service design. Was it a smooth road or was it a bumpy road? It was brutal, to be completely <laughs> honest with you. I was always the industrial designer that wanted to talk to people and I wanted to design with them. And at the time when I was studying, that was 
just a ludicrous idea and why would I bother, you know? Mm. And so I would have a lot of kind of back and forth with my lecturers, back and forth with my clients, back and forth with my mentors about I don't know if we're designing this to be suitable for elderly women because we haven't spoken to what to them and we don't know what they actually need. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's been really I think it's been kind of a gradual process as well. Like I've definitely had a few glimpses of kind of co-design and service design just by accident. And so I've always mm-hmm. been kind of circling back to kind of try to find those experiences again. Yeah. One of the projects that I first saw of yours was designing health. I don't know where I saw it, but I remember there was a quote and I have it in front of me here, like health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Okay. Now that's, that is a really nice, it encapsulates a kind of a broader understanding of what health means in the traditional sense. But are you okay to talk a little bit more around that project? Because I think it would be a really good one to, for the listeners to understand a little bit more of its origins and the problems that were faced. Are you yeah. okay to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I guess that was one of my projects while I was in the Design Academy in Eindhoven. And that was my master's thesis was looking at health. And I think Really what I was looking at was how can we incorporate the other parts of health that aren't necessarily considered, so mental health and social well-being in, in the healthcare services that we design. Actually, going back to acupuncture, one of the funny things I did was I tried a bunch of alternative medicines and like all sorts of strange potions and different avenues for what healthcare felt like in non-Western ways. Mm. when I was kind of researching that. So essentially what I did in that project was I ended up kind of setting off a series of experiments and then kind of designing a few products and services that kind of met the need of socially engaging people with each other while they were ill and Mm. also kind of supporting mental health. So one of the final outcomes was actually a product It was like a blanket that would be um, used in the emergency room and so you could visit your family or friend and you could colour in and do activities. And so the whole idea was you had something that you could work on together, you built on it over time, you didn't necessarily have to have that really awkward small talk, you could just really shut up and colour in if that's what you wanted to do. Mm. And so, yeah, that was kind of quite a nice project where I was working with a group of people who've had chronic illnesses and they all kind of described how at the beginning of their diagnosis people would come and visit them when they got ill, but as their um, condition progressed, like people would stop visiting and there was nothing to do and they had so many magazines and they'd seen all the TV shows and so they just really wanted someone to connect with them and to do something together while they were together with their loved ones. Yeah, it reminds me, I didn't know about the the final outcome in terms of the, the colouring in aspect, but I, I remember years ago working with Cara Care in Sydney and Mary Jo McVeigh is someone who I've worked with through the New South Wales government when I was in Australia. They had this wonderful therapy for children who'd suffered abuse where they'd they'd create a, a cloak like a blanket 
and there was something that was really warming and a, a safe haven for them to have this this kind of quilt it sounds something along the same lines that they were creating and they were working together and sharing stories and yeah definitely something really nice about that whole kind of interaction and creating things in those kind of times yeah it's it's quite simple but i think the the important part of it was really there's a lot of research that goes into the power of distraction and pain and so you could actually see reductions mm. in how much medicine you need to give people and their mental health just because they've got something to do mm. Talk to me more around uh, the work that you were doing in Eindhoven. You, was that a master's in service design? Oh, gee. So it's one of those things where you sign up for one thing and then you graduate something else. So I just oh. happened I just happened to sign up for the Masters of Man and Humanity, which was really looking at social, social design and environmental design. Oh. And the basis of it was actually anthropology. So... It kind of was all the things I was really interested in all combined. And then halfway through, we had a tumultuous period and I ended up graduating social design, which was horrifying for my mum because it's very close to socialist design. And if you know my surname, Shafaitska, communism yeah. didn't work out too well for us. So, <laughs> so that was an, an anxious moment when I was kind of graduating because the design academy is known to be quite a hard environment to graduate from and so until the very last moment you weren't sure if you actually just spent two years trying your best and hadn't graduated. Wow okay so but that was it a degree or was it a master's? It was a master's. It was a master's so that probably led you to more some of the other projects that I, I'm more aware of in, in your portfolio such as the refugee realities that came after that then? No, so refugee oh. refugee realities was really the trigger. Well, I actually did that project. It was one of those moments in your life where you know you're already overloaded, but you can't really let it go. And so, refugee realities. I was actually graduating my industrial design degree, and I was in my final semester making a lovely vegetable garden, modular vegetable garden, which no one believed in because everyone had backyards back then. So I was busy trying to graduate that and I saw an advert from Oxfam and they were looking for like a creative designer or something. And so essentially it ended up being me and a person working at Oxfam. I think they're now a very successful humanitarian lawyer, Steph Cousins, and we were kind of the starting team of this project, this idea, can we build a refugee camp in the city? Okay. Can we create an exhibition that will help young people and children understand how hard it is being a refugee, what it's like trying to get asylum in the country, and help them be advocates for refugees? That was in Melbourne. That was in Melbourne. And I think for me it was like an interesting project because I'm a fresh-faced, I don't know, designer. I haven't even really got my degree printed out yet. Uh, and yeah. here I am creating this exhibition out of hard rubbish. <laughs> mm. well, that would have been something that would have been quite – was that 2014? I'm looking at your Behance portfolio here, which I'll throw a link to in – the show notes but what was that like in australia at that time having something 
it was quite provocative in the middle of the city, which for anyone who hasn't been to Melbourne, it's one of the most beautiful cities on earth. But to have a refugee camp that's from the photographs looks like it's made out of, as you say, garbage and, you know, bits and pieces, you know, what, what kind of response did you get from the, the Melbournians? Well, look, I think, I think there's too many layers to this. So mm. I guess when I applied for that job, one of the, one of the things that I was excited about being able to say during the interview was I'm a refugee and that was really powerful moment for me to be able to recognize who I was and be able to contribute back mm. what I knew. And I think, you know, in many ways that was my first co-design experience. Like I was yeah. the co-designer. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how it worked, but I was given the autonomy and the support to build something from the very beginning to the very end. And the climate at that point was not great. And mm. as a refugee myself, it, it had been every four years there'd be a new political campaign, a smear campaign against refugees, and I would feel unwelcome and I would feel threatened and yeah. I would feel alone and I wouldn't have anyone to talk to about it. And so for me it was like, well, I know refugees are great people and I know others than me. And it wasn't like, can I do this? It was, I have to do this. Yeah. So it's brilliant that you brought that topic up because around that time I was looking at 2014, I think it was around Stop the Boats in Australia, which for anyone who's not familiar with Australian politics, Australia had a leader called Tony Abbott, who was... How should we phrase this, Joe? He's a difficult leader who basically pontificated about stuff like this, about stop the boat, stop people coming into the country who are trying to claim refugee status. And so what I was kind of alluding to there was like, what was the, the reception from the general Melburnians? It was, I think it would have been, I know Melbourne people very well, but I think it would have been received pretty openly, was it? It was, and I think one of the... I think one of the beauties of this project mm. was it grew. So at the very beginning, there was two of us, then there was four, then there was five. Then we had more designers. Then we actually started bringing in more refugees. So we had other refugees sharing their stories. We had designed a camp. We designed different parts of the camp. We created a movie, a mobile phone game, and then we started getting teachers. We had teachers who created curriculum that would go into schools and we had evaluations. We even had actors who were refugees playing people inside the camp that you could interact with and they could use their experience to tell you about what it's actually like, you know, tracing a family member using Red Cross. Yeah. So did that start, that started out with a camp it started out with a project we were like we're, we're going to do this thing and then the other things just followed from it is that correct yeah we were just like we, we want to build we want to build a simulation well we want to teach young people and kids about what it's like being a refugee yeah and we wanted to be super clear that it's not about jumping the queue like the queue is an idea that doesn't really exist yeah. if you're feeling unsafe and persecuted you're looking for a safe new home and you wouldn't be making that decision. It's a very hard choice to make. You wouldn't be doing it just to get a leg up. Yeah. 
I'm looking at the photographs here. It's like th there's so many provocative things to have in a, in a in a pretty safe environment like Melbourne downtown, where you have like unite against diarrhea and transmission and prevention canisters and stuff like this. So people would have been jolted from their version of reality to see these kind of things in front of them. Yeah, definitely. And I think what was interesting is we had teachers writing curriculum. So before children and young people came to the refugee camp, they would be learning about different people's stories. They'd be doing all sorts of activities. And so they'd be a little bit more prepared for what was going to unfold. But they probably were still not prepared for, you know, you enter the exhibition and you were in this international house, which was a funny mashup of all sorts of cultures, like every house and no house at the same time. Yeah. And then suddenly something happened and we had all these amazing audio engineers creating an event, like it would just rumble mm. and you'd be like, you've got to flee. Yeah. What are you taking? And so the group would get split off into two. So a class would get split into two and you'd have different experiences based on whether or not you decided to stay, whether or not you decided to flee. And so it's a really fascinating experiment really for all of us we were learning as we kind of built it. But the energy was massive. But isn't that the best form of design? You're learning it, learning as you build it. And I mean, that's too often something that we we probably don't lean on as much. And then within co-design, it's something we obviously we love and we champion. Like we're we're learning as we're doing these things. And what I love about that project, and I'm actually I've learned as I've had this conversation as well, but the way it's it evolved from one thing into another thing and started to you iterate it in real time and you had these real social experiments happening. It sounds like it's, it's it was one of those moments in time where a lot of values and a lot of kind of design therapy in some ways were were, were playing out in your life. What what happened at the end of the project? Like how did it all wrap up? Well, that's the thing. Like it's kind of like I don't know. I feel like every project kind of wraps up, especially if it's an exhibition mm. in a bit of a low. So for us, it was shoveling out the many, many cubic meters of sand we'd created inside one of the rooms. So that was kind of the, the sad end to it. But the impact. Yeah. So I think like quite like we actually got it into a like Victorian curriculum. So it was mandatory for all young people. I think it was like grade six to year 10 to go and try this simulation or go through the camp. So I think hopefully those are the people who have been at the refugee marches and are helping yeah. raise the voice of refugees right now. I'm really hopeful. Because it's one of those things that would help reshape the conversations very quickly for the people who are against those kind of things, having them experience what it could be like really helps open up the conversation which is i guess co-design at its purest form like you've you've got these things in front of people and you start building and designing and opening up channels for communication to evolve would you say that was one of your first forays into co-design a hundred percent and i i think it took me another 10 years to realize that's what that was mm. and i guess being where i am now i'm always hopeful that i get to share that with other people that I collaborate with too. Yeah. 
because it just gives you so much energy and power. Like it's just so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk more about because I'd love to talk more around your involvement in the co-design community as we've as we're speaking beforehand, it's kind of blossomed in Australia, like most beautiful things blossom in Australia at this time of year. But walk me through what co-design is to you and how it differs to say other forms of I'm using air quotes here, folks, traditional design methods. Oh, I think for me personally, co-design is really about sharing power, giving value to everybody involved in the design process. And so the way that that differs from, say, traditional design is the designer doesn't necessarily want to share the power or the decision-making of what the final design is. Mm. And so there's a lot of kind of letting go of determining what the outcome is. Why do you feel designers in particular are afraid of relinquishing that power? Because it's taken them so much hard work to get it. <laughs> like there's no payoff for them letting that go. And I think it's just scary. It's just scary to let it go. And I think a lot of us as designers or even as professionals or consultants, like we have a feeling about what it's like to be in the workforce and how important it is to be professional and to know the answers and to be able to speak to that question. And so co-design is, is more about kind of creating the space for other people to figure it out as opposed to knowing all the answers. Yeah. So when, when you're speaking there, I, I can see there's probably a couple of stories you're reflecting maybe on, on instances of where that's happened. But for the designers out there that are thinking about what that might look like, what are the steps that they can go through to, to helping free up some of that power to try this co-design approach? Well, look, I guess... Often we kind of describe the first step as understanding your own power mm. or understanding even the system you're kind of working in. So, so like depending on the project, you might have a think about are there any things that I bring into this project that might bias it or change the trajectory to go a certain way or another? Mm. And I guess even before the project starts, it might be do I even have the the power to to develop this project in the way that it should be, mm. will it have the impact it needs? And if people tell me that it, it shouldn't happen or it should be done differently, will I have the ability to change my trajectory? Yeah. I spoke with David Dylan Thomas recently who wrote that brilliant book for Book Apart called Designing For and With Cognitive Bias. And David spoke about the importance of the planning phase and the preparation phase about identifying those biases and have them on front of people or in front of people and that self-awareness being brought into the conversation much much earlier as opposed to like hey we're about to do usability testing what does it look like uh, in that in that instance what's your approach to those kind of conversations about identifying the biases and what we need to have in order for this project to be successful, those kind of conversations. Walk me through how you approach those things, Joe. I think for me, like I often work on, I kind of work on my own in the little fiefdoms that I'm in because I work in healthcare and I work 
in public dentistry most days. So it's really important for me to understand kind of the environment that I'm in and understand their motivation for this project. And there's some really great stuff that's the equity-centred community design from Creative Reaction Labs okay. and Antoinette Carroll. And so they do a lot of stuff about looking back at the past, looking back at the past of this project and looking back at the past of this organisation or this space and really thinking about what trauma there might even be underneath the surface. Mm. So that you're not making the same mistake again. You're not running in all optimistic and thinking, hey, I'm going to totally redesign specialist care when your whole workforce is exhausted because they've just been trying to survive through coronavirus for the last year. And so there's a lot of kind of sensing that you need to do both for yourself. Like, am I, am I ready to take on this project? How big do I think it is? And, you know, where am I sitting in this ecosystem? But also about the space in general, like, is it a safe space for people to participate in? Are they ready to even do this sort of work? Because it's not easy. Yeah. It's a big thing because like programs get fired up all the time in organizations and it's like, the time they fired up in December versus in August, there's two different mindsets there from the organization. One is looking forward to Christmas and in Australia, they're looking forward to winter, you know, but looking at the workforce's capability to to reflect and how it sets itself up for success is one of the most critical things. It's looking at humans. We're, we're all working together as people and the timing of these projects is I don't think I've ever worked on a project where they've sat back and went, it's not the right time of year to do these things because people are going to be taking lots of holidays. Maybe there's people out there listening who are project managers or product managers who go, no, we always do that. Well, I'm just saying from my perspective, I don't see it too often. <laughs> they get fired up and then they're like, let's go. We're like, we're like a load of machines running at the same yep. speed. And it's yeah. 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 And I guess for me, it's, the next kind of step after that is really what communities do I need to have involved in order to have the most diverse perspectives and life experience we we can muster. Mm. And so often it is about kind of having those connections to community before you kind of get going Mm. so that you feel confident that you already know each other a little bit. You've already got that. they, They already feel a bit confident about the processes involved and they're ready to collaborate. So with that in mind, I'm interested in going quite granular on that interaction, okay? Because how you frame those things could be seen as being quite contentious or being quite resistive to the whole kind of enablement of the project from a design lead or a head of design to sit there in a room full of business people and saying, okay, I want to make sure you've got the right people in the team I want to understand your perspectives on these things. It kind of goes beyond the traditional sense of a business organization that just look at the skills needed. You know, like mm-hmm. I can do prototyping, I can do workshop facilitation, but what else? It's kind of looking at the the whole kind of mental models of, of your team. Definitely, yeah. You're looking for the mindset more than the skills. And I think in many ways, you're going to have better results with a team that is less experienced, but has the right mindset and is eager to learn. And especially in co-design, sometimes knowing too much is a real problem. So when that 
you know, we're, we're aware that that's a huge thing. We need the right mindset, the right people, the right gaps within in our own bias audit, so, so to speak. How do you do that? Like, I, I'm interested because when I go in, sometimes I come in at different stages of projects. And for me to sit back and kind of go, you don't have the right team. And they go, we do. We've got like design researchers. We've got service designers. We've got UX people. And it's very hard for me to pinpoint. and going to go, yeah, but that person and that person. And walk me through how you approach those things. It sounds like an interview here, folks. <laughs> yeah, I'm being real grilled. I guess for me, what I tend to do is I have some, some really kind of in-depth conversations with the team members one-on-one. Okay. And I go, look, this is the project. These are kind of roughly our goals. How are you feeling? Like, mm. are you feeling confident? Is this something you're interested in? What would you like to get out of it? Yeah. And then I guess the other lens I put over it is not that it's just skills, it's also lived experience. So I look for intersectionality. So I look for team members who are disabled. I look for team members that are migrants. I look for team members that are solo parents because I know that they will understand how the service reacts differently to them immediately Mm. and they'll have better connection to the community members because the lines are a bit more blurred between professional and community because they're both already they're kind of double agents it's just having that inclusive lens it's right at the start and it's not something that can be added on later on in the the project and kind of okay we're we're doing inclusivity work now like because we've included them in our usability or validation whatever you want to call it it's it's right up front it's right at the start to make sure that they're included and people can be visible within the team so joe what what else in terms of co-design so setting the team up is is critical okay we, we know that having the right mindsets the right people the right personnel the right skill the right perspectives on life but as you move through the stages of say co-design and you get into the whole kind of co-design world of designing a session for people listening out there what does that look like on on an event sort of level walk me through what that what that does okay so i guess there are different ways that you can co-design right so it's not i think in in australia what you'll find is that there are a lot of co-design workshops which of course are the most economical way that you can run a co-design session because it's just one hit you get it done in four hours and then you've said that you've co-designed whether or not you co-designed or not questionable but you've got a tick and they've said they've done it So I guess what's been really interesting is this year I've actually been working with another member from the kind of co-design club and that's Emma Blomkamp and we've been working on a project which is around investigating how people look for legal help online. Okay. So with Justice Connect. And so we actually embedded a lot of kind of co-design tools in the research process. So that's not necessarily full-blown co-design but we're still using the same practice in how people look for help and doing that research and so you've got certain things that you do so ahead of this well the first thing you want to do is make the most inclusive delightful human invitation you possibly can so you're not inviting people to a scary research session in a dental hospital because research session in a dental hospital tends to lend itself to some sort of experimental science that nobody wants to sign up for. 
And so you have to, you know, create an invitation which shows what it's happening, has probably your face on it, explains it in plain and easy English. And you're kind of trying to spruik it and go, hey, look, we're really interested in your opinion on this and we want to hear from these communities. So that's like step one. Yeah. Then you make lots of friends <laughs> and you know how recruitment goes. Lots of friends make lots of friends. And so you you kind of shop it around and you go, is there anything I could do to adjust this invitation to get more diverse folks to come? Yeah. How does it feel? Is there anything I've screwed up here in how I've worded it? Is there something here that maybe I've written he or she where I'm actually don't care about gender? Maybe I can remove that whole section yeah out altogether and I haven't found it when I did my review. And then I guess you kind of go through a little bit of a screener and I think what we found during the the bit of work that we've been doing recently is like because we've been working remotely, we can be much more flexible with time. And so we were able to reach uh, more parents, more parents with young children. We were able to offer like two one-hour sessions as opposed to a two-hour session. And so we got better interaction, better relationships, better participants just because we were able to um, split them up and and divide that work. Yeah, it's one of the side benefits, one of the only benefits maybe of the whole kind of COVID thing is you have to work online, you're able to approach people and you're able to split our work up a little bit better. But walk me through again, like I, I sound like I'm a walk me through person when you get to those sessions online in particular, because we're now in this whole world where most of our work is happening yeah. online, co-design for me is very much a human thing. And when I sit with people and I get to read the room and I get to sense things and you know help people along the way and nurture, get people out of their shells and stuff, how are you managing that in the online world? What's that been like for you? So... So for me, that's actually been smaller groups, smaller groups, much smaller groups. Four. And so three, four, three, four maximum, one-on-one, still brilliant. And I think for me it's been about how do I, we all have, we like when we were running this research, we were all in lockdown. And so it was really about how do I value this one person the most that I can and that was one-on-one. Yeah. Like I could have thrown everybody into a room with 20 of us and we would have been done in half an hour, but no. <laughs> mm-hmm. We kept going and we kept touching base and for some people it took a few sessions to kind of warm up, but that was actually really valuable because yeah. we got to know each other much more deeply, we got to learn from their perspective and they gained confidence mm-hmm. as they went along. And so it wasn't kind of the burn and churn of co-design where it's like that's your $20 or $100, thank you very much, go away yeah. and never hear of them again. It was about, well, we're both learning about what their experience is like and we're both kind of testing and creating and running experiments together to learn about how they're thinking about things. So it sounds great and and super important. One of the things that we were speaking about earlier was almost sneaking co-design into the projects, like getting stakeholders because there's businesses out there that – may have never heard of it and a leap for them will be ux you know like bringing ux designers in like hey the ux people are here you and i know that co-design it's brilliant there's huge benefits in it but 
walk me through some of some there is that word again walk me through but in that <laughs> in the the kind of conversations you have with leadership how do you get around those questions about this approach of involving mm. people into this stage of the, the research and design I think so at the moment I'm actually quite lucky I have co-design in my title Wait. and so we all know that's what I'm here to do. I think mm. the challenge is the organisation might not be ready for it yet. And that was kind of going back to that safety. Like if the staff aren't ready and the community isn't ready, then we're not ready. And so it's about kind of creating, building their capability, helping show them that they are creative before I kind of invite mm. invite them in to collaborate. But Often I find it easier to say that I'm a UXer and sneak in co-design than it is to say that I'm a co-designer because because co-design is seen as such a cumbersome thing and such a long and expensive process that lots of organisations are just a bit afraid of even engaging with it. It doesn't have to be though, does it? It doesn't have to be long and expensive. No, and I guess that's the thing. Like Mm. if you have your community of diverse participants and you're kind of still a bit respectful to them and they see value in participating, Mm. then like me, you can co-design a guide about telehealth within eight hours. Yeah, (laughs) So how are you learning about new methods within co-design? Look, where are your go-to places and who are your go-to people? So at the moment, I guess I guess where I where I see like a massive gap in how co-design or even service design is run is it's inaccessible to quite a yeah. few billion people. Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Like but the biggest one is it's just not made for people with disabilities. Yeah. And so at the moment I'm definitely kind of following the work of a lot of really great disabled advocates and designers mm. around the world. Do you want to name any so we can actually have some links in the show notes? Disability Visibility Project and Alice Wong is pretty amazing and I would recommend listening to the audiobook yeah. just because you never really get to hear people telling disabled stories yeah. or stories of disability. And so they have a lot of great projects. I think another one is called Access is Love, which kind of coming up from the like Crip Twitter, (laughs) which is excellent, by the way, which is all about how to kind of run things differently so that people with disabilities have a life like everybody else and it's not patronising thing. Okay, well, we'll put those links um in the show notes but as i mentioned at the start of the conversation to you before we start recording i've got some new questions that i've been weaving into my interviews and i'd love to end this podcast with these three questions okay so joe first question is what's the one thing that you're grateful for at the moment oh my gosh so that's always i think being grateful some people are really naturally grateful people and i think i'm just naturally really cynical person but i think for this year i'm just really grateful for all the communities that have helped me get through this year like i haven't necessarily found solace 
in my workmate teams, but I have found a lot of comfort and a lot of conversation with the people that I design with, like the healthcare consumers and mm. and all of those lovely people that we get it done. Yeah, <laughs> that you're researching with. Yeah, yeah definitely. Like second question. The one thing you wish you could have told your younger self? Oh, gee. So I think it's something that I continue to try to tell myself every day, which is just try to be more patient. Mm. I don't know. It's. I think there's this urgency within me that cannot be tamed, and I feel like it was even worse when I was younger. So maybe there's a chance for me yet. Yeah, I can relate to that one as well, especially in in these times where working longer hours and everything. So, and last one, uh, what's the one thing you're going to try and do more of in 2021? Okay, 2021. It's so hard. I feel like my ability to plan anything ahead of a week is totally out the window at the moment. One thing I would want to do more of, I think for me, it would be investing in others. That's nice. In in what form? I think I just want to make more space to encourage other people. Yeah. 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 That's a really nice one. That's a really nice way to end this conversation as well. So I just want to say a big thank you to giving me the time and sharing your stories. Um, I know all the listeners will, will love listening to your stories and also they'll enjoy looking at the portfolio as well because it's it's inspiring work and it's it's great for emerging designers to see the kind of variety of work you can be involved in. So Joe, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always great to chat with you. I'll throw links to all your work in the show notes as well. Yeah, excellent. Cheers, Joe. So there you have it. That's all for this episode of Bringing Design Closer. If you like this episode, feel free to visit thisishcd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research, and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com, where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders join the This Is HCD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network and also if you're interested apply to join the Slack community on thisishcd.com. Stay safe and until next time take care.